Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 26, verses 17 through 28. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find that in the blue pew Bible under your chair or the chair in front of you. That's on page 832. I would encourage you to have your Bible open and ready, as I have been, as we'll be flipping to different passages of Scripture in our time together this morning like we have over the past several weeks. <laughs> but to catch us up to speed, today we're in week four of our series on ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. The first week we answered the question, what is the church? And then in week two, last week in week three, through this week today, we've launched into a discussion on the church's exercise of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We started with the ordinance of baptism, and last week we looked at what the ordinances together create, church membership, which necessitates church discipline, and now this week we'll be closing the loop, so to speak, Lord willing, as we answer the question, what is the Lord's Supper? If we're thinking in terms of timeline over these last few weeks, the Holy Spirit has worked in our hearts, we've heard and received the gospel message, we've been made disciples of Christ, we made that faith public in baptism, and we've entered into one of Christ's visible local churches, Christ's body manifested. We've been made members of this local church through baptism upon a credible profession of faith. And as disciples of Christ, members of this local church, we keep watch over one another. We disciple and even discipline one another out of our love for Christ and love for this body. Finally, as a symbol of the unity within the one body that we share, we partake of the Lord's Supper together. This brings us to our text this morning, Matthew 26, verses 17 through 29. I'll read that for us. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Three overarching points this morning. First is a lot like the last two weeks. The keys, the church, and the ordinances. Specifically, we're looking at the Lord's Supper. Like we've done the last two weeks now, we'll start by looking at the connection between the three, and Lord willing, we're going to close that loop. Second point, what is the Lord's Supper? We'll define it. And the third point, the beauty of the Lord's Supper. We're going to look at the greater gospel realities that our participation in the Lord's Supper points us to. So first point, the keys, the church, and the ordinances, we're thinking about the Lord's Supper now. Up to this point, over the past several weeks, we've been building layer upon layer as to the relationship between the keys, the church, and the ordinances. I think that what I'll say today makes sense within this framework, but I don't know if it'll make sense in isolation without having listened to what we've already walked through previously. So if you're, if you're here and you haven't done that, you haven't done that with us when we've answered the question, what is baptism? And then last week, what is church membership and what is church discipline? I would encourage you to listen to those sermons in conjunction with what we will be talking about this morning. It all goes together. But for the time being, here's a brief recap as we make the connection today. Okay? In Matthew 16, we learned that it is Christ who builds his church. And he does so through Peter's apostolic message. That is the proclamation of the gospel that Jesus is the Christ. As the apostles proclaimed this gospel, he gave them authority to exercise the keys of the kingdom of heaven to bind and to loose. That is to largely distinguish here on earth between those who received and believed this gospel and those who didn't. We looked at Matthew 18 where we saw that Christ has delegated this same apostolic authority to exercise the keys of the kingdom to local churches. Local churches have been given the authority by Christ to distinguish on earth between those who believe and receive and believe this gospel and those who don't. That is to distinguish those who are inside the church from those who are outside, members of Christ's body, those who are not members of Christ's body. In Matthew 28, we learn that Christ is given a visible sign to distinguish new disciples, people coming into this body. The first sign is baptism. Once a disciple has been made, that is, they've heard and they've believed the gospel, they are to pursue baptism and in obedience to Christ and are to be baptized by a local church in obedience to Christ's command, which gives visible evidence to their submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ and subsequent entrance into his covenant community, members of his body. Last week, we took a closer look at Matthew 18 again, where Jesus commands his church to exercise these keys, not just in affirming people inside, but also in considering who were at one time inside, which we call church membership, to now be outside which we call church discipline. Church discipline is the process by which the local church considers one who was a brother, a recognized church member, as we saw last week, who was inside, but is living in unrepentant sin and is unwilling to repent. After we've gone to them several times, instead of continuing to affirm him as being inside, we're to consider him outside. That is to not be a brother, to not be a member of Christ's body bound in his sin. 
And here is where our connection with the Lord's Supper comes into play this morning. Christ has given his church two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is only done one time. It's an initiating oath sign. But the Lord's Supper is to be done regularly by the members of Christ's body, his church. It is an ongoing sign. So look with me again back at Matthew 26, specifically at verse 26 through 29. Jesus took bread after blessing it, broke it, gave it to his disciples. Take and eat. This is my body. He took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Here, Jesus is instituting the ongoing ordinance of the Lord's Supper. The translators of your Bible may have even put that as a header, and that's really helpful. Header of verses 26 through 29, the institution of the Supper. That's helpful for us. Now, this account is also recorded in two other places, specifically in Mark 14, verses 23 through 25, and the Gospel of Luke, Luke 22, verses 14 through 23. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these three Gospels together are called the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic literally means seeing together. Okay? And they've been named this because of their congruity. They contain a lot of parallels with one another. We can understand everything together as a whole through these three synoptic gospels. For example, Mark's account of the Lord's Supper is almost identical to Matthew's with a few omissions. He leaves some stuff out. And Luke's account is similar to both with a few additions. He adds some things. But they all together help create a picture of what actually took place on the night of Jesus' final supper with his disciples, his last supper. So with this being the case, the connection there between these three Gospels, let's actually flip over and look at Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 23. And I'll read that for us. Luke 22, 14 through 23. This is Luke's account of the Lord's Supper. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be. Who was going to do this? Excuse me. As we read that account, you probably picked up on some of the similarities and the differences between the two, Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel. But to try and finalize the connection, okay, between the keys, the church, and the ordinances, the Lord's Supper, I want to point out something here that we don't see in Matthew 26. So look with me at verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 19. Okay, what does he do? He takes the bread, he blesses it. He gives it to them. That's all similar. But there's more to what he says here 
Then in Matthew's account, Jesus further elaborates not only what they were to do, that is to eat the bread, which was his body, as Matthew told us, but what does he do? He also elaborates why they were to do it. This is my body, which is given for you. This you in context is to his disciples. And they are to do this in remembrance of him. That is in remembrance of his body given for them. Okay? Which we know happened on the cross. When Christ bore our sins on the tree, when he died in our place for our sin, every single one of us who's sinned against God, we're guilty of that sin before a holy God. And we deserve judgment for our sin. But Christ laid his life down on the cross so that those of us who put our faith and trust in Christ will receive forgiveness for our sins against God. We will be cleansed by his blood, the blood of the new covenant poured out for us. We will be reconciled to God. We only, let me be clear, we only have peace with God through Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection in our place. So when the disciples do this, They are to do it in remembrance of Christ's body broken, his blood poured out for them when he dies on the cross. But not generally. They don't remember it generally. They remember it for them. That is, they do it in remembrance of the gospel that they believe that they obey. Which leads me to try and make this connection as clear as I can. As the church wields the keys of the kingdom, we are proclaiming that gospel, that Jesus' body was indeed broken, that his blood was poured out so that we could be made new. You can have new life in Christ if you repent of your sins and turn to Christ by faith. He alone has the power. He alone has the authority, not only to pay for our sin, but to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when people believe that gospel... We give the first ordinance of baptism to that individual, which signifies this change. It gives visible form to this Holy Spirit transformation commitment to create this when he's made a member of the visible church through baptism. We are the ones who together affirm that it was indeed the gospel that this person believed and in the name of the Trinity that they were baptized. As they're brought in, Here's the connection. We regularly affirm our once being baptized upon a credible profession of faith and subsequent membership in the body of Christ through our partaking in the Lord's Supper together. At that point, the Lord's Supper serves the church in a variety of ways, but one of those ways is to show you the connection here is that the supper is visible. It's a regular sign of those who are inside the body as opposed to those who are outside the body. The Lord's Supper is to be done in remembrance of the gospel that saved us. It is to be done by disciples of Christ. But if we're going to administer this ordinance, we as a local church are responsible to exercise the keys that we've been delegated faithfully, responsibly, in such a way that ensures it really is disciples of Christ who partake at this table every single week. And church, how do we know if someone is a disciple of Christ? Christ 
himself has given us the keys, the proclamation of the gospel, and its visible signs to help us draw visible boundaries between who is inside his church and who is outside, between who are the disciples of Christ and who are not. What is the sign that Jesus himself has given in Matthew 28 as a visible evident sign that someone has been made a disciple? Baptism. They've been baptized in his name. And what does their baptism signify? It signifies submission to his lordship and entrance into his body. Submission to his body out of reverence for Christ himself. Christ has commanded his disciples in his word to be baptized. To submit themselves to him and to his body. And these local bodies partake of the Lord's Supper together. It is these visible disciples who've made their faith public, baptized members of one of Christ's visible local churches that are to partake regularly in the Lord's Supper together. And we are responsible as a local church to draw these boundaries as Christ would have us. This is why we fence the table the way that we do. One quote I shared before, I'll share it again. Baptism and the Lord's Supper give the church visible institutional form and order. They knit many into one. Church membership names a a relation which the ordinances create. That is to say again that the church is its members. It is its members. So again, to try and be as clear as possible, to tie it all together from, from week two, week three, and then today, I'll say this. Jesus himself obligates that those who would call themselves his disciples are to be baptized in his name. Baptism is the visible sign of submission to his lordship and entrance into his covenant community, his body. It is the local church that administers this initiating ordinances. Therefore, baptism is required for church membership. If someone is not willing to be baptized, we as a church can't welcome them in as members because we can't fully affirm that they have been made disciples of Christ. They're not willing to go public with their faith. Jesus himself has instituted the Lord's Supper to be done regularly by his disciples. It is the local church that administers this ongoing ordinance, and it is the members of the local body that we can confidently affirm are disciples of Christ. So it is therefore members together who are to take the Lord's Supper whether members here or members at another church that preaches the same gospel, the assumption there is they've been made members, meaning the church has tested their baptism upon a credible profession of faith. A church somewhere can affirm that person is a disciple. And they're welcome to partake here with us as well. So with that connection being made between the local church's responsibility to exercise the keys, to administer the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, we've effectively closed this loop on the keys, the church, and the ordinances. So now let's, for the remainder of our time, develop a fuller definition of the Lord's Supper. Point number two, what is the Lord's Supper? Like we did with baptism, I want to answer this question three times in three different ways so we can get a well-rounded picture of what it is. Lord willing, each definition will help answer questions that you might have with regards to the supper I may not answer all your questions right now, but again, like I said, with baptism, the elders are happy to talk about any of these things with anybody who has questions. So please do come to us, and we'd be happy to talk with you 
about these things. The first definition will take the most time because I want to give the definition and then I want to give some necessary historical background to the Lord's Supper. So first definition. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic meal whereby members of the church partake of the one bread and the one cup together to commemorate and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's a long definition. Let me say it one more time. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic meal whereby members of the church partake of the one bread and the one cup together to commemorate and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So flip back with me to Matthew 26. Let's look at Matthew 26, and then I want to give some historical background. This is what verse 17, we're going to be in verse 17 through 19. This is what it says. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed him, and they prepared the Passover. When we looked at baptism, I briefly pointed out there that it is not a one-to-one transition between circumcision in the Old Testament to baptism in the New Testament. The same thing is true for the Passover meal celebrated by the people of Israel and the Lord's Supper celebrated by the gathered church. They're similar in the respect that they're both visible, ongoing signs to be done by God's covenant people. But again, the covenants they represent are vastly different, and therefore the signs signify different realities. The Passover meal, to give you some historical background, was an annual meal to be done by the people of Israel in remembrance of the Passover in Exodus 12 when the Lord miraculously delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt through great signs and wonders. They prepared unleavened bread. They sacrificed a spotless lamb and smeared its blood on their doorposts so the Lord would pass over them and not take the lives of their firstborn children or livestock. And we can see this in Exodus 12. I'm going to read this. You don't have to turn there. Exodus 12, verses 14 through 17. It says this. The Lord says this. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven out of your house. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. You can hear the connection with the initiating sign of circumcision for the people of Israel. Verse 16. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. This is what the disciples were preparing in Matthew 26. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. So look back with me to Matthew 26, verse 26. Okay, They're eating the Passover. This is a meal that the disciples prepared. They've begun to celebrate it with Jesus. But here it's called the Last Supper because 
It's the final Passover meal Jesus celebrates with his disciples before his death, burial, and resurrection. But notice, during the Last Supper, Jesus takes the signs of the meal and transforms them. Okay, One theologian helped me with the significance of this, and this is what he says. Tyler, I think I have a long, the long quote on the, on the screen. This is what he says. Standard procedure. This is about how the Passover meal was to be done. This is what it looks like. Standard procedure called for the leader of the Passover to express thanksgiving for the unleavened bread and the cup of wine, which was the third of four cups, before distributing them to the participants. Jesus presumably uttered the traditional thanksgiving. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. He then broke the bread and distributed it to his disciples. To this traditional action, Jesus appended a startling statement. Take, eat. This is my body. In so doing, Jesus changed the meal he and his disciples were eating from a remembrance of the departure of the people of Israel from Egypt to an anticipation of his sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary for the sins of the world. Following tradition, Jesus took the the cup, the third cup associated with redemption and gave thanks. Again, to this customary action, Jesus appended a startling statement. Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. In so doing, Jesus signaled the end of the Mosaic covenant and anticipated the establishment of the new covenant. The old covenant had been ratified by blood, Exodus 24, and so would the new covenant, but it would be by Jesus' own blood. He would offer himself as the sacrificial Passover lamb. The Lord's Supper, which Jesus instituted to be done in remembrance of him at his last supper, is similar to the Passover meal, but Jesus transforms it, taking it and now pointing the meal to its fulfillment in him. That's the meal we celebrate together. It's a meal that points us back to the redemption accomplished through the sacrificial offering of Christ himself in our place. Atonement for our sins, achieved through our Passover lamb who died once for all for the forgiveness of sins. The Lord's Supper goes beyond the Passover meal and the Lord has instituted this as an ongoing rite to the church to do in remembrance of him and proclamation of him until he returns. You notice the elements in this supper are unleavened bread and wine. What Jesus calls in Matthew 26 and and, in Mark, I believe, fruit of the vine. Verse 29 in Matthew 26. These are the elements that we're to use. As opposed to Coca-Cola and Cheez-Its, for example. Because the elements serve a symbolic purpose. First, it's what the Lord used. But second... The imagery that it provides serves as the visible sign of what it represents. Christ's body is broken, and Christ's blood has been poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Second definition. The Lord's Supper is the renewing or ongoing oath sign of the new covenant. Like I got that same definition of baptism from an author named Bobby Jameson, this is a similar uh, argument that he makes in his book, Going Public. Baptism is the initiating oath sign signaling entrance into this covenant and covenant community. The supper is the renewing oath sign signaling maintenance within this covenant and the covenant community. 
Other than the text in the Synoptic Gospels that we've seen, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are two more texts that talk about the Lord's Supper from Paul, and that's 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11. Turn there with me, 1 Corinthians 10 first. We're going to talk about it being a renewing oath sign. 1 Corinthians 10. Here, Paul, uh, we learn explicitly that the Lord's Supper is a renewing oath sign. Paul isn't speaking to the Lord's Supper. Sorry, I said explicitly. I meant here. Paul isn't speaking to the Lord's Supper explicitly in the sense that he's telling us how we're to do it, why we're to do it, how often we're to do it, laying those things out of progression for us. He doesn't do that. But rather, he does teach those things implicitly about the Lord's Supper as he uses the Lord's Supper to address some issues that were going on in the Corinthian church. Specifically, idolatry, that's in chapter 10, and divisions and factions, that's in chapter 11. So after reading these texts, I'll I'll point out what they teach us about the supper, either implicitly or explicitly. But first, let's read 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 22, okay? Paul is speaking against idolatry. He's using the supper rather than pure devotion to Christ. So look at verse 14. Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? The food offered to idols, that the food food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? First, this text shows us there is a real participation in the body and blood of Christ when we partake of the Lord's Supper. He makes that point negatively there in verse 20. If it wasn't clear positively in verse 16, he says, I do not want you to be participants with demons. If eating pagan sacrifices warrants Paul's warning, then we must believe that as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are participating in some way with the sacrifice of Christ. That is, we are spiritually benefiting. We are being nourished, if you will, by all the spiritual benefits associated with Christ's death in our place. Which leads us to the second thing that this text teaches us as we participate in the body and blood of Christ together, verse 17, we who are many become one. That is to say, yes, this is a visible symbol of our unity, but it also stimulates our unity as we really eat together, as we drink together, we look around and we see those with whom we are truly united. This is real, communal, Corporate participation in the body and the blood of Christ, his sacrifice for us. Now look down to chapter 11, verses 17 through 
34 with me. Paul is speaking here against divisions, against factions within the body rather than unity. Verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So pause here. Implicitly, okay, we learn here that the Lord's Supper is to be observed when we come together as a church. That is, the whole church is gathered to observe this ongoing renewing ordinance. That would rule out partaking it at home, on your own, or in small groups, or at weddings. The Lord's Supper is to be done as a gathered church when we come together. Paul says this three times here. When we come together, when we come together as a church, when we come together. He also points it out in verse 20, which we're going to see in a second. There's a way in which we can partake that makes the Lord's Supper something else, not the ordinance. And in verse 21, it relates to people going on ahead with their own meal. Later, he connects it this to the phrase, without discerning the body. And we'll talk about that in a second. But let's keep going here. Luke, um, as, a side, as a side note, Luke, we know, was a traveling companion with Paul. And this is most likely where Paul received from the Lord here his direction about the Lord's Supper. So look at what he says in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, This is the same language that Luke uses in his gospel. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Same language as Luke. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul adds this, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That section teaches us two things. First, implicitly saying, as often as you eat and drink seems to say that the Lord's Supper should be administered with regularity when the church gathers together. This would connect us to our overall understanding of the ordinance that we've seen up to this point, that they give visible shape to the church. You see the church and its membership. You see the membership as we partake of the Lord's Supper as often as we gather. Second, explicitly, we proclaim the Lord's death when we partake of the Lord's Supper. That is proclamation within the body and proclamation to the outside world. In the body, when we take, we are saying, this is the gospel that saved me. This is the gospel I believe and obey. I am a disciple of Christ. Christ died for me. And when we take it together, we say, yes, I know this gospel to be true of that brother and that sister. It's true. Christ died for them. I believe this gospel also. Christ died for me. I affirm his salvation as, off, as the proclamation of the gospel as much as I can and so far as I can see it upon a credible profession of faith. And he affirms mine. 
to the outside world, we're saying, hey, this is the only gospel that can save. And it is sufficient to do so. You too can participate in the body and in the blood. You too can share in the benefits of Christ's sacrifice on the cross if you repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in Christ Jesus. So now let's keep going. Here we get to the point in Paul's discussion where he clarifies what it means to take the bread and cup in an unworthy manner. And he encourages self-examination before partaking, okay? Remember, he's speaking to divisions and factions, and this is what he says, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. In this context, wealthier members were going ahead and they were eating and drinking their fill, even to the point of drunkenness and gluttony, before poorer working members were able to get to the gathering and partake of the supper with them. So the unworthy participation is what Paul condemns. It's participation in a way that fosters division in the church. In this context, the rich had a supper, but it wasn't the Lord's Supper because it was in contempt of the poorer members of the body. There's a class distinction in the Corinthian context, but Paul broadens this out in verse 29. If anyone, if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, okay, theologian Wayne Grudem puts it this way, that is the unity and interdependence of people in the church, which is the body of Christ. If we don't discern the body, We eat and drink judgment on ourselves. The church is to be united. As the bread is one, so we are one. Therefore, participating in the Lord's Supper entails a responsibility by the individual to discern the body. That is to discern your relationship to the body as one characterized by love and unity rather than one characterized by division and factions. Allison, whom I quoted earlier, says it this way. This self-assessment is not for searching out remaining sins. These should be confessed and repented of promptly, not accumulated and dismissed quickly and inconsiderately before sharing in the Lord's Supper. Rather, the self-examination is specifically for the purpose of detecting broken relationships, division-causing behavior, disrespect, and mistreatment of brothers and sisters in Christ. If self-assessment reveals these problems, the Christian should refrain from participating in the Lord's Supper and act decisively and promptly to rectify the mistreatment of others and reconcile broken relationships. In this context, Paul addresses ways in which eating the Lord's Supper can be divisive. But I believe principally the same can be true for those members of the body who might refrain from eating the supper. 
Both are ways in which it is very evident that division is present. But the encouragement from the apostle is to take and eat together. Examine yourself to ensure you're not the source or the cause of any division. And if so, reconcile the division. We are united in Christ around the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Then take and eat together with the body. If you examine yourself and there is no source of call or cause of division, then brother or sister, take and eat, therefore, in a worthy manner as the apostle has commanded us to. Third definition. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace. The Lord's Supper does not infuse grace. It does not save. It is not salvific. It's not required for salvation. The bread and the wine don't mystically or magically become Christ's actual body and Christ's actual blood. They remain bread and wine, serving us as symbols of greater gospel realities. Because we're saved by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus, in Christ alone. But like baptism, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, both for those who receive its sign and for the lost in the world that witness it. As I said with baptism, again, I say God uses means of grace as instruments to either bless or convert. So what I'm saying here is that God uses the Lord's Supper itself to bless those participating and those who watch. God uses this meal, the bread and the wine, as the means to do the blessing. And he does the same for the lost who see it because, again, the Lord's Supper is a visible, tangible sign of the gospel. That Christ's body really was broken for us. That his blood really was poured out on the cross for us. And that his sacrifice really applies to those of us who receive him by faith and submit to his lordship. Every time we participate in the supper, we again are reminded vividly with a picture of the gospel. We're reminded of the cross where Jesus died, where God's wrath was satisfied, where every sin on him was laid so that in the love of Christ we could stand with confidence and assurance before our God, our Lord. We take and we eat the gospel, remembering that the benefits of Christ's sacrifice are for us. And even then we're reminded of the unity that we share together as one body with Christ as our head because it's the one gospel that has saved us in the one baptism we've been baptized in into the one body, the one bread broken for every one of us. Our partaking of the one bread and the one cup together should serve to deepen our love and commitment for Christ and for one another, church. The Lord's Supper is a holy ordinance that we ought to do with reverence and awe, giving glory to God for the work that he accomplished in our hearts to bring us to himself and our brothers and sisters' hearts, that he's brought them to himself in our hearts together as a church because the Lord Jesus alone has saved us. I quoted Herman Bobbink on the ordinances when we discussed baptism, but to reiterate what he says at the end, this is what he says. The ordinances do not infuse a physical grace, but confer the whole Christ whom believers already possess by the word, they bestow on them that same Christ in another way and by another road, and so strengthen the faith. Furthermore, they renew the believer's covenant with God, strengthen them in the communion of Christ, 
joined them more closely to each other, set them apart from the world, and witnessed to angels and their fellow human beings, showing that they are the people of God, the church of Christ, the communion of the saints. This happens every single time we partake. I praise God it's every week because it really is absolutely beautiful that the Lord would love us enough to give us an ordinance so visible, so tangible, in this case, even edible, so that in our lives, as we walk with Christ with one another, we regularly hear the gospel preached, see the gospel as we love one another, and we even taste the gospel, Christ's bitter death in our place. Triumph leads us to point number three. The beauty of the ordinance, the beauty of the Lord's Supper. As we close our time today, I want us to look at the beauty of this ordinance as we've seen it in the New Testament. I want to give you five statements to take with you, to chew on this week, maybe even every week, as you either take the Lord's Supper with our church, or if you're a member of another church, you take it with your church. First one the Lord's Supper is a visible symbol of Christ's body broken and his blood poured out for us. It's Matthew 26, 26 through 29. As you see the elements before you, when you take them in your hand, you see a symbol of Christ's body, his blood. And these point you to the greater gospel reality that has actually happened. Christ's body was actually broken for you. His blood was actually poured out for you. We can't go back 2,000 years ago. But the Lord has given us this supper to visibly, tangibly see his crucifixion every time that we gather. Second, the Lord's Supper is a visible symbol of our participation in Christ's sacrifice. Not only does it point us to these realities, but it is a participation in this reality. Going a step further than seeing his body and seeing his blood, we actually participate in that once-for-all sacrifice for our sins by faith. We believe this gospel, and the benefits of this gospel have been poured out on us. Namely, when we take, we remember that our sins are forgiven. We've been cleansed. We've been made new. Our scarlet sins have been washed white as snow. We've been united to Christ. We've been united with one another. Christ's sacrifice was for me. It was for us. And we participate in it together. Third, the Lord's Supper signifies our ongoing new covenant relationship with God. It signifies our ongoing new covenant relationship with God. After all, the Lord Jesus instituted this supper to be done in remembrance of him by his disciples. When we remember him, we don't simply remember his name or that he was there or that he existed. We remember what he has done for us. The salvation that he's accomplished for us, the grace we've received, again, relating back to the benefits of the supper for us. One of those is a continual reminder that we are in covenant relationship with the triune God. And this ought to fuel our love and our obedience to him and our love and devotion to one another. Number four, the Lord's Supper portrays and stimulates unity within the body. 
It's an ongoing, renewing sign that not only signifies our covenant with the Lord, but our covenant with one another. The unity that we share together, but from the gospel that the supper portrays, and in our participating in that gospel together, we see it. When we eat together, drink together as one, this ought to stimulate a greater desire for unity between us. To put aside differences in class, aside differences in status, ethnicity, whatever category the world might try to divide us into and see ourselves, we see ourselves as one body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, united in and around the gospel that has saved us and brought us together. Last one, number five. The Lord's Supper. I love this one. The Lord's Supper is a celebration. It's a celebration. As we saw in 1 Corinthians 11, coming to the table and partaking of the supper is first about participating in a worthy manner, discerning the body, the church, not first about being worthy participants. You see the difference there? We're all sinners, and we are called to live lives that keep in step with repentance. In that sense, there's no worthy participant in the Lord's Supper. Not one of us is worthy, because none of us are even worthy of the salvation that we've received by faith as a gift. But it's not about being a worthy participant. It's about participating in a worthy manner. And God is good. And the Lord's Supper is a celebration that together we remember the death of Christ in our place, proclaim this good news to the world until he returns again. But that's just it, church. He's coming again. He's coming again. And this meal not only points us back to the gospel that saved us, points us to our unity together right now today around that gospel, the benefits of the sacrifice of Christ, but this meal points us to a heavenly meal. A heavenly meal. On that day, the day when Christ himself will drink of the fruit of the vine with us again, new in his Father's kingdom. Until that day, we celebrate this supper together. This isn't a time to feel sorry for Jesus for dying. This is a time to rejoice because Jesus rose. And Jesus is in heaven. And Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again and he brings us to himself, we're going to be at a greater table where the nations are gathered for his glory and his name's sake, and we're going to be eating with him forever. So when you take and eat, remember that reality and celebrate that reality. Don't look for morbid introspection, but discern your relation within the body. And then look to the supper as it points to Jesus' supper that he'll bring to us again. And let's rejoice together when we eat. We take this together with joy, unified as one body with Christ as our head. In just a moment, we will celebrate this supper together. As we've closed the connection today, we can see that this is a meal for disciples of Jesus Christ who've been baptized and are members in good standing with our church or with another local church that preaches the same gospel that you've heard here this morning, that Jesus alone saves sinners. And if that is you here this morning, you are welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper with us as we, a local visible church, RBC, celebrates this glorious gospel that Christ has created in an ecclesia for himself, one body, including ours, and one day, Lord willing, every one of us will be with him in his Father's kingdom for eternity.